there. Thank you, Aaron, very much. Thank you for your ministry this morning. Appreciate that. And the worship team, it is uh, very good to be with you here to worship with you. It was a wonderful experience this morning, and uh, I enjoyed that a lot. Normally, my wife would be with with me and travel with me, but um, she is going through uh, chemotherapy right now for stage four breast cancer and um, is not able to travel. And so a friend of mine, Ian, came and uh, joined me this morning and drove down with me so I wouldn't come by myself. Appreciated him doing that. And uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to come and minister the word this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn, if you would, please, in your Bible to... Second Peter, chapter 1. I was amazed that our Sunday school lesson this morning came from this exact passage that I would like to teach on this morning. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, the Lord has interesting ways of doing things. And it was great to hear that passage taught and reflected on and uh, to know that I was coming in here to do the same thing. I don't think it will be redundant. I think and trust that it will be complementary. The title of my message this morning is a question. And that is, will heaven be the same for everyone? Or to word it another way, will everyone who goes to heaven have the same experience. We, we kind of think of someday, because we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have the opportunity to go and spend eternity with him, and, and life will be wonderful there. And, and we trust and believe that that is, in fact, the case. But will we all have the same experience in heaven? Um, let me illustrate I went to college for electronic engineering, and uh, my, before I became a pastor, I spent 10 years in the computer industry, working on computer systems and teaching other people how to work on computer systems. I'm a hardware guy, and um, I, I'm a left-brain, linear, cause-and-effect kind of a thinker. I mean, I'm, I'm the classic left brain person. So when it came time for me to continue my education and work on a business degree, um, I went to Southern New Hampshire University, and they put me into a course called Humanities, which has got nothing at all to do with left brain. I mean, zero. And we learned about uh, things that I'd never studied, like music and and uh, and the arts, and and I found it actually quite fascinating. When I was growing up, my dad used to listen to classical music on the radio or the stereo, and I didn't think much of it. I mean, it was just nice music, and it was just there. It was okay. 
But I took this class, and we started learning words like motifs and themes and counterpoint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I start learning about all these terms, and we start sorting out how they work in music, basic music theory. Some of you are very familiar with this. And not long after I took this course, um, my wife and I were given tickets to go to a concert in Manchester. The uh, then New Hampshire Symphony Orchestra was playing, and we went to uh, a concert. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, I've heard these songs before, but I have never heard them like this before. This is fascinating. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, oh my goodness, if, if I'm sitting here listening to this differently today than I ever would have before, then what about somebody who's got their graduate de- degree from Juilliard? How are they processing what they're hearing if they're sitting here in the same room with me? In other words... We could have a number of different people in that same room, in the presence of the same orchestra, listening to the same thing, but having very different experiences. Does that make sense? And the same thing I would submit to you this morning is true of heaven. Someday, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus will go and Stand in his presence and be part of the eternal family of God. But I would submit to you that we're not all going to have the same experience. Follow along with me, if you would, from verse 1 in Second Peter Chapter 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world by lust. Now, Peter starts off here talking to people who have the same kind of faith that he and the other apostles do. People of, who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, verse 1. And then he recounts in verse 3, saying that God has granted to us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, 
That list could be pretty extensive, but let's just talk about a few of those things this morning. What has the Lord granted to us pertaining to life and godliness? Well, certainly he's given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. He has given us the word of God from which we can understand who we, as as has been recounted this morning wonderfully well, the word through which we can understand who God is and who we are in relationship to God. And we can understand how to be pleasing to God from his word. So he's given us the Lord. He's given us the word. He's given us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and supplies the power that we need. And then he's given us the body of Christ, other people around us to whom we are organically connected, the family of God. Connected not by blood, but by the Spirit who joins us together. And so we, we have these resources that have been made available to us. And he says these are the things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he goes on and says, verse 4, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now, promises are always about when. The future. When somebody makes a promise, it's about the future. We don't make promises about the past, do we? The past is done. Promises are about the future, about what the future will be like. And so when you see the word promise, the promise is about the future. Looking forward. What do we have to look forward to? Magnificent promises about the future in order that by them you might become, might become subjunctive, future. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Well, that promise there is that we can become more and more and more experientially like the Lord Jesus Christ. That by faith having received him, we can in the future look more and more like he does and reflect his grace and his glory in the world. But that promise just isn't, the promises just aren't about this life. They're also about the future life. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. So then Peter goes on and he says these things. Now, for this very reason also, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, uses the word supply. Now, I'm not sure what translation you have this morning. Um, different translations say some different things. I think the King James says add. I think the NIV might say add. There's a, there's a couple of different words that are used. Within your faith that you have in Christ, he says, I want you to do something. I want you to cooperate with the Lord in this process of making you more like Jesus Christ. God is not going to unilaterally do it within us. He expects us, you and I, to cooperate with him in this process 
so that the process is maximized and optimized. The problem with this is you and I have a will. And our will may not line up with the Lord's will. Another problem that was brought out in our Sunday school class this morning is that we have within us, within our flesh, a nature that is contrary to the things of God, that rebels against the things of God. Another problem is that there is an enemy who would beguile us and trick us and lure us away from the things that God wants to do in our lives and would divert us onto a different path if he could. And so Peter says, look, I want you to apply all diligence. In other words, I want you to work hard. I want you to exert some effort in this process of doing certain things in cooperation with what God wants to do in you. And then he goes on, he he talks about some qualities. He says, in your faith, I want you to supply moral excellence. Well, what is moral excellence? Uh, King James says virtue. The NIV says goodness. And A.S. says moral excellence. I like the phrase moral excellence because it sets a superlative. And we obviously live in a culture that is not characterized by moral excellence. This current election cycle has brought into quite... Uh, stark reality, the ugly underbelly of our political system and of our political leaders. There is a very tawdry characteristic to what's going on in the political process right now. And as a country, as a country, We should be ashamed. Moral excellence is is nowhere to be found within what the mainstream media is portraying about the cycle, the election cycle that we are in. We are told, though, that, that within our lives, we are to be characterized by moral excellence. Now, the way I would define moral excellence is simply choosing to avoid sin before you do it, rather than asking forgiveness for it later. Choosing to avoid sin beforehand. An example of that from the Old Testament would be the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph is in Potiphar's house. Potiphar has made him the head steward of everything in his home. Joseph's in charge of everything. Potiphar's wife finds Joseph attractive and appeals to him on 
multiple ongoing occasions that he that she wants to have an intimate relationship with him. And he categorically avoids it uh, over and over again, going the other direction. That's moral excellence. He goes the other direction. He walks away to the point that she is scorned and takes her revenge on him. Uh, Billy Graham is a man who over many decades of ministry, there is not one accusation of immorality that could ever stick against him because he conducted himself always with moral excellence to the degree so far that whenever he traveled, he and his secretary never traveled in the same vehicle, ever. They were going from the hotel to the airport. They took separate cabs. A friend of mine, uh, many years ago when I was a pastor down in New Hampshire, uh, I got a phone call from him one day, and he, and he comes to see me, and he says, I got a problem. I said, okay, tell me about it. What's the problem? He says, um, he, he was a salesman, uh, so he traveled. And he, he said, um, I, I've been assigned to go to this sales convention, um, which was about a five-hour drive away. And I, I'm not going by myself. The boss said that so-and-so is going with me. I said, so what's the problem? He said, so-and-so is drop-dead gorgeous. And, and, and my wife knows who she is, and she is not real thrilled about me spending 10 hours in a car with her. I said, so what, what are you going to do? <laughs> he said, that's what I'm here to talk to you about. I don't know what to do. I said, okay, well... What do you see as the problem? He said, well, I know, I know that if I spend 10 hours in a car with her, that's going to lead to a lot of dialogue about a lot of different things. And I don't even want to have those conversations. So I said, why don't you just rent another car? He said, my boss will only rent one car. I said, so what are you going to do? I think I'm going to take my own car. That's what he said. That is moral excellence. See what I mean? Not because... He was afraid of what his wife might think. That wasn't the issue. He said, I do not want to compromise my relationship with my wife for anything. And he made the decision to not only take his own car on that trip, but he booked reservations in a totally different hotel. And this particular woman, who was in fact hoping to pick his brain because she was brand new with the company and was hoping to get uh, to have him treat her as a mentor, uh, 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 I'm sorry, that he could be her mentor, said, it's not happening. I have to find a different mentor. That is moral excellence. And you see, Peter here is saying, we need to be the kind of people who think along those lines. That we participate in the process of becoming more like Jesus 
by making good decisions. It, it was said in Sunday school class this morning that the that that these characteristics that we're looking at, like moral excellence, are gifts that are given to us. And, and in a sense, that's true. We just need to appropriate them. But that's our decision to appropriate them and to operate in a manner that that honors God to your moral excellence. He says, add knowledge. What is what knowledge is he talking about? Well, the knowledge that he's talking about is simply an understanding of what it is that brings pleasure to God. Um, You don't necessarily need to turn here, but in Ephesians chapter five, it says this. Um, for you were formerly darkness, verse 8, but now you are children of light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to God. Trying to learn what is pleasing to God. In other words, that's our responsibility, to develop the knowledge of what is pleasing to God. In any circumstance that I find myself, what in this circumstance, what is the choice that I can make that will bring the most pleasure to God, not to myself, not to my spouse, not to my kids, not to my boss. I need to know in this situation, in these circumstances, oh God, what will bring the most pleasure to you? And to your knowledge, Peter says, I want you to add self-control. Well, self-control is not hard to understand. It means... Controlling yourself, controlling your extremities, where your feet go, what your hands do, what your eyes look at, what your ears listen to. That's self-control. Making decisions about what I allow my senses to perceive. We often think of self-control on the output side, but it's also on the input side. What do I perceive with my senses, and then how do I operate through my members? To your self-control, add perseverance. It's interesting that he juxtaposed those two things, because if I make the decision to appropriate self-control, I am going to set up within myself a tension between the spirit and the flesh because the flesh wants to do one thing and the spirit wants to do something else. And when I appropriate self-control, I immediately create tension. And I need to be able to persevere through that tension that's created. To my perseverance, I am to add godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is is awareness of and piety toward God. It's awareness of God's presence. uh, presence. It's piety toward God. It's, It's understanding that God is always with me. When I'm alone... In a room 
looking at a computer screen and there's no one else there who's with me. God is always with me. He always knows what I'm looking at on that screen. What I'm listening to. Godliness is that understanding of his constant presence. And not finding it offensive. You see, we can be aware of God's presence and and rebel against it and reject it and and find it oppressive. That's not godliness. That's evil. Evil does not want to be in the presence of God. But godliness is the desire to be in the presence of God and, and the total awareness of it. And to my godliness, I'm to add brotherly love, intentional affection and Service toward other followers of Christ. And to my brotherly uh, love or brotherly kindness, I'm to add agape love. And agape love is displays of kindness and compassion toward all people. But particularly those who have been malicious toward me. Wow, that's a hard choice. Choosing... To be kind and gracious towards someone who has been deliberately, intentionally hurtful toward me. That's what agape love is. These are qualities which Peter is saying we, you and I, are responsible for participating and cooperating with God in the process of making me like his son, Jesus Christ. And as these Qualities develop within me, I look more and more like Jesus. But he won't do this apart from us. He doesn't just reach down into our lives and say, okay, boom, you're like my son. It's all over. You don't have to worry about any other part of the the struggle. The struggle's over. Well, there there, there will be coming a day in the future when the struggle will be over. As was mentioned in Sunday school class that... Today, we've been released from the power of sin, but not the presence. It's always there around us. Someday, we'll be released from the presence of it. And so, Peter says, verse 8, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities, now this is what's fascinating to me, is short-sighted. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. In other words, the person who has not been participating with the Lord in the development of these qualities within himself or herself is not thinking far enough into the future. That's what short-sightedness is. Short-sightedness is only living in the moment, living in the present, living right now, not looking down the road, not seeing where the end of this path goes. And so Peter says, I don't want you to be short-sighted. I want you to look down the road to where the end of this is. And then he continues and he tells us what the end is. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, 
the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, this phrase, entrance into the kingdom, uh, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is about stepping into heaven. That is about the ultimate goal of leaving life enveloped by this body and stepping into an eternal body and being in the presence of the Lord. But notice the wording, and words are important here. He says that that entrance into the eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, there's a parallelism. There's, there's two things about this phraseology. There's a parallelism and a proportionalism. The parallelism is in the word supply. You see, he's told us to supply something, and it's the exact same word here where he says that Jesus is going to supply something to us. It's the exact same word. There's a parallel. When we are cooperating with the Lord in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus, he wants to give us something. He wants to give us entrance into his kingdom. But then he uses the word abundantly, and that's where the proportional part of this comes in. You see, back in verse 5, it says, For this very reason, applying all diligence. Diligence represents what? Effort. Energy. And so, here's what I would submit to you. To the degree that you and I invest time and energy into the process of becoming more like Christ, that is the degree to which he will abundantly supply our entrance into the eternal kingdom. There is a relationship, a proportional relationship between those two things. We choose in this life the nature of our experience in the next life. That's the point of this. That's the point that Peter's trying to make here. We will not all have the same experience in the future. It will be different. How much energy did you put in to trying to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Or did you get sucked into the things of the world? The quote-unquote American dream. That's what I'm about is, is... Raising my family and having a home and having cool stuff and getting the toys. That's what I'm about. Well, to the degree that you do that, the word abundantly is diminished to something else, you see. Maybe moderately. Maybe your entrance into the kingdom will be meagerly supplied because you meagerly cooperated with what Jesus was trying to do in your life. Every day, you and I wake up and we make a constant life. Our lives are nothing but a constant series of choices. From the time you and I get up in the morning, we make a decision. The very first decision is what? Whether or not to get out of bed. That's a decision. And we make all kinds of decisions. Some of those decisions have moral implications and some of them don't. I mean, whether you're going to have... Cheerios or Wheaties for breakfast does not have real significant moral implications. But, but most of the decisions that we make 
do have moral implications. How I respond to my boss when he gives me a directive has moral implications. And so, just like that concert, we were all present, listening to the same music, but we were not all having the same experience. Uh, My assertion to you this morning is, those of us here in this room today who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, one day we will all be present together in heaven. Will we have the same experience or not? Um, So, let me ask you, how far ahead are you thinking in life? Are you thinking into eternity? How happy will you be in heaven? C.S. Lewis said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Let us be people who are not short-sighted, but who are looking into eternity, saying to ourselves, I want to maximize my experience in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word. And though Peter has framed this in a certain way today, to focus on the positive, the the abundance of the joy that you have for us, yet we can't help but infer the negative. That if we focus too much on this life, that yes, because of our faith in Christ, we will be in your presence And yet, there will be a lack. Help us, Lord, so that as we encounter people who do not know you, the joy that we have in this life looking forward would be genuine and would create a testimony for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.